So I read something on the internet this past week, which means it must be true. Um, I read that recent studies tell us that small children around the age of my son, Jeremiah, who's four, ask on average 178 questions per day. 178 questions per day. I didn't know if that was true, so I remember driving my son from his school last week uh, before I came here to open table, and he goes to school in Bethesda, and we live by the cathedral, so it's a nice little three-mile drive of traffic every day. Uh, it's called sanctification. It's awesome. And um, I remember, like, I wanted to put it to the test, but I didn't want to, like, encourage too many questions because I just wouldn't have been in a good spot emotionally to do that. And um, so he's asking me, like, hey, uh, how was your day, Dad? What did, what did you uh, have for lunch? Uh, uh, why is my seatbelt so tight? Uh, are you going to Bonnie's Chi Alpha or AU Chi Alpha tonight? Why do you have to go to Chi Alpha? Uh, can Chi Alpha students come to my birthday party? Like, he just has all these questions. And it's interesting because you probably know this, but, you know, people often have different motives or they ask questions for different purposes, right? Like, so my son asks questions for information and understanding, but he also asks questions as a delay tactic. These are two questions we've really heard at eight o'clock when he goes to bed. He yells from the bedroom to the living room. My wife, Hannah, and I are watching TV or The West Wing, and I mentioned that so you think I'm progressive and cool, so that's why I dropped that TV show. Um, so we're watching The West Wing, and uh, my son is yelling. He's like, why is water wet? And it's like, I can't even get into this, man. Like, I don't even know how to answer that. And so I told my wife, we like love science, you know, and I was like, you got this one, you got this, you know. Uh, I can't be the only expert, like I'm about equal rights, like you got this. And uh, then like a few minutes later, he's like, uh, if God created everything, who created God? And then she like looks at me like, you're the pastor guy, and I'm like priesthood of all believers. And we get into this argument, right, about like who has to go answer these interesting questions. So he asks for information, he asks to delay, sometimes he'll ask in a form of protest. Like, he wants to start an argument uh, with us. I know you never have had someone in your class or dorm ask a question just to hear themselves talk or to argue your point. But at AU, that's very frequent. You know, I feel like the love language of every American University student is arguments. And I know it's very different here at Georgetown, maybe a little bit more civilized, but at AU, it's a madhouse, okay? So when I take questions from students, I'm trying to discern, like, what is the purpose for them asking questions? And I remember hearing Nabil Qureshi talk about this once on our campus. He, he wrote the book, um, Seeking All of Finding Jesus. And he said this, he said, when you answer a question, you're never just answering what you think they're asking about, you're answering the soul of a questioner. And he helped kind of bring into focus for me that when I'm in conversation with somebody, like I'm engaging in a spiritual act, or at the very least, I'm engaging uh, with somebody who at the very least is made in the image of God, and possibly if by faith they are now a child of God. It's like I'm having this incredible spiritual moment regardless of why people are asking questions. And the bill would say, how do you get to a point where you're not just sharing information, but you're bringing ministry or care to somebody's soul? And those are the reasons why I'm so excited that I get to be here for week one of this series called Ask Me Another. Uh, I, I love the idea because questions are so important to our faith. That's why things like Alpha are so important because our doubts can either draw us towards God or distance us from God. And it really matters how we're asking the questions and are we asking the questions in isolation or in community. And that's one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of Alpha. And this series is, is pretty cool, at least in Bonnie and I's opinion, because it's a series we're doing for 10 weeks. 
both here at Georgetown and at American. So like, what, how do we kind of, with two different expressions of Chi Alpha in the same city, how do we begin to make sure that we're asking the right questions and then we're learning to answer questions that our friends may have or those in our life group or small group? How do we do so in a way that isn't just about information but that can lead to transformation? In other ways, we say it like this, that transformation takes place across relational lines. And, and I think that's just such an important point for us to grasp and why we gather in corporate worship or teaching and why we have life groups or why we encourage you to partake in life at a local church. And so 10-week series, the first half is going to be questions that the early church wrestled with. And we can get those questions and some of their answers by reading in the New Testament these letters from one church community or one house church or one life group to another. Those are called epistles. And then the last five weeks, we're going to talk about, as campus ministry staff, like the five most frequently asked questions that we get. What questions come up year after year, um, student after student, and how do we begin to address them, not just so that we know the right answers, but so that we can live in right relationship with God and those around us. I mean, that's what righteousness is. It's not just doing the right thing. It's being in right standing with God. And then out of that identity, the expression is the practices or the behavior or the reality. Um, and in other words, someone once said it like this, that all theology exits our minds through our hands and our feet. So how do we make sure that if we're invited into community, that community is a safe place marked with grace for people to ask questions. Well, that brings us to our primary text tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 through 17. And I told Jesse that I wouldn't speak for two hours. I'd keep it to one hour. So let's get to it. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. That was a joke, but that's cool. <laughs> says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul speaking of whom I am the worst. But for the very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Verse 17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The question that's taking place in the house church that Timothy leads, that's being overseen by his spiritual father, Paul, is this question that we have to grapple with if our faith is going to be meaningful. Why did Jesus do what he did? That's the question that these three verses is trying to answer. That's the situation that is being addressed. And that's why I love reading the epistles. It's letters that are addressing specific pastoral concerns in the early church. And it's not just questions that occurred once in the scope of history, but questions that continue to echo even to the here and now at Georgetown and at American. In other words, you could phrase the question like this. They were wrestling with in the young upstart church plant that Timothy led is, what was the primary objective in the life of Jesus? And I'm sure you're aware of this. Like any political figure, in any point in history, groups that have certain interests can utilize a speaker or a person or a teacher or a civil rights activist 
to look and sound like their own ideas. Does that make sense? Like we read our own desires into the narratives of our heroes. That's one of the reasons we can wind up with such a sanitized view of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. is because we read our own sensibilities and then we try to pass them on, in my estimation, so that we're comfortable with change that used to happen and not change that needs to happen. But I'll get off the soapbox for now. So right here, we're talking about Paul making an exclusive claim as to what Timothy needs to lead his young church in understanding. And he says this, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. I love how it's in the Bible, so we believe it's God-breathed. But in verse 15, it says, like, hey, this is a trustworthy saying. It's like that bold, you know, italics, all uppercase argument on Facebook. Like, that's what's happening here. Like, it's the Bible. You shouldn't have to say, like, you should trust this. So this is like a double trust passage that we're being invited into. Not only is it inspired by God, but Paul's like, no, this one is really good. You should take note. I love that Paul is honest. He says twice in three verses, hey, I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. Like, that's the opposite of the I'm busy, that was the worst part of my week, like life group moment. You guys have those life group moments where like a new person comes and you're like, tell me your highs and lows, your happies and crappies, like whatever you guys call it here, that's what we call it American. Um, and they're like, oh, I was just busy. Like, that's my low. It's like, wow, so vulnerable. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> and what, what, what can you pray about? It's like, oh, can you pray for my test? Like I didn't study. And the subtext is like, I just watched Netflix all week. Can you pray? No, I'm not going to leverage the Holy Spirit to help you cheat. The answer is no. No, I'm not going to pray for you. No, not at all. That's just my own personal thing I'm working on. <laughs> Paul is saying what is important and essential. The one thing, the Jesus essentialism, the minimalist perspective on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that he came to save people and to save sinners. It's easier, I'm sure at Georgetown and definitely at American, to emphasize other parts of the story of Jesus. The Beatitudes, Kingdom of God, that plays really well at American University right now. The, hey, we are not citizens primarily of this country, but the priority is our citizenship of heaven. That's like saying I'm a vegan at American. Like, that's a flaws zone. But this is almost more troublesome and controversial. Because it's not just talking about righting the wrongs we see out there, but it's saying that we need to find rightness in the wrongs in here. What I love about Georgetown and American University and other DC schools is that there is such a passion that students have for seeing the world better. Like 60% of students at American are in the School of International Service, so they all agree that something is broken and that our involvement could help lead to a solution. Like, what a great kind of moment to step in with the gospel, right? Because I also agree that the world is very broken. But I also believe it's very broken because we're all broken in here. And our brokenness, all, it, it all, all of us crack in different places. And the gospel, the essential mark or moment, is that Jesus came to save I'd imagine for you, like me, being transparent or vulnerable or open, especially online, is, is pretty easy. It's pretty simple. It's kind of a mark of, I would say, our generation, but that would be lying. In your generation, um, 
But this is different because it's saying like we also can't fix it ourselves. Like that's the most offensive part of Christianity to me. It's saying, hey, your life is busted. You probably know that. What you don't know is you can't fix it yourself. When we think about it, that's like a very jarring statement, especially at Georgetown and American where students are incredibly capable. I uh, remember when I first came to DC in fall 2011 to do an internship with Chi Alpha. And I was sitting in a room in our student union and I had four guys that showed up to my small group that first week. And one of them um, had an international film company that's partnered with YouTube. Uh, one of them was a personal assistant of Wolf Blitzer in an internship. Another one ran a nonprofit uh, disability awareness. And then, like, the fourth guy, I don't really remember him because his resume wasn't great. But, like, all four of those guys were freshmen. And I was like, so I went to Alabama and got married the day after graduation. <laughs> so week one, I realized in September of 2011 that the most important thing I could offer students isn't what I'd done or what I'd seen, but who I knew, and that's Jesus. Because we make this... We can tend to overestimate the power of experience. I mean, it helps. When you can sit across the table with someone and say, like, I've been in your shoes. I've struggled the way you struggled. I get that. But the only thing greater than that is saying, like, man, I want to administer healing to you out of the context of Scripture, which exists objectively in a way that truth can show in your life and in mine. I think sometimes it's hard for us to listen to people when we know their experiences haven't intersected with ours. But the beauty of believing in the gospel is that all of us need saving from ourselves. And then from the way that other people's brokenness has impacted us. The primary purpose of Jesus, the question that they're arguing about, they're talking about, what does it mean to be ceremoniously unclean? How do we like engage as like a sect of Judaism? And who should be leading? And, and what does it mean to like, be in the way of Jesus. And as they're trying to figure this out 2,000 years ago, it was important enough for Paul to tell his spiritual son, Timothy, it's about remembering that Jesus came to save sinners. I think sometimes the simplest things in life are the hardest to live. I think sometimes the greatest stories that we can tell of life change and transformation are sometimes the most difficult when we're experiencing them in real time. I remember telling some of my supporters, because as a Chi Alpha staff, I, I have the privilege of like, you know, asking friends and family to invest financially in what I'm doing. Super cool, not awkward. And so uh, it's called support raising, which is a great name for something kind of crappy at times. And I remember when I was doing that, I will tell cool stories, right? Like, oh man, there's this Buddhist who's been in my small group for two years. That's a great story. Uh, I'm glad that someone of another faith background felt comfortable to be in my Kyle small group. But the story was sweeter than the actual experience. Like, that's a really challenging environment when you have Christians from all over the country. And there's this awesome, like, guy from another religion. You don't know why he's coming to your basement every week, but he's there. And I just, like, think about that in my life, in ministry. Like, the greatest stories that we tell in film and movies and literature are often the most difficult to live through. But they're worth sharing because of their intensity. And the intensity of the life of Jesus is that he's leveraging all of who he was 
so that we would be saved, so that we would surrender and know him. And then it connects us to this like alternate vision in 17 of what the kingdom of God looks like. It, it's eternal, it's immortal, it's invisible, it's invitational but exclusive. Jesus desires all to be saved, but he's the only way to salvation. And then we're to use our lives to bring honor and glory forever and ever. As I think back on my college years, I mean, something years ago, um, I, I remember this truth that E. Stanley Jones writes about. He's, in my opinion, the greatest Methodist missionary to exist. And in his book, Christ of the Indian Road, he says this. He says, without a clear image of Jesus, the rest of the Christian life and Christian scriptures either become untenable or unattractive. That if we don't introduce people to an experience with Jesus, the rest of our lives don't really add up. Like if, if we don't meet Jesus, the importance of this letter or the other 60-some books in Scripture just doesn't really hold water in a world that's broken and hurting, filled with injustice and pain. But it's the face of Jesus that changes it all. One of the things I've grown to appreciate from some Methodist friends that I have is that in most of their churches, they have this tradition of kind of remembering your baptism kind of as a part of their liturgy. And I love that it's, it's part of their liturgy to think back to a moment where God showed up in an incredible way. If we read the First Testament or the Old Testament of Scripture, we'll find a God who cares so much about the journey and process with the people that are obsessed with the promise. And that kind of describes me, like I want to get to where I'm going. I don't really care much to take my time in the process. And the story of God's people in the Old Testament is a story of a people who are trying to get from A to B and don't realize that it's in the journey that the beauty embraces them. They don't realize that in between A and B is where God builds and shows up and shows out in their lives in stories. And they also do something or don't do something that I'm guilty of is they don't remember. I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you read scripture, sometimes I just get so mad at the characters in the Bible. I'm like, how could you not? Like, you just literally walked through the Red Sea, parted, and you're complaining about manna. That's like Uber Eats pre-internet. It's food delivered. And then you're like, well, I'm mad that God didn't give us water. Like, what? You know, like, or I'll, or I'll, like, read, like, you know, one of the disciples is, like, taking a step on the water. He's, like, going to do what Jesus did. But then he gets, like, scared. I'm like, this is the guy that turned a Happy Meal into a buffet for, like, 3,000 people without any health code violations. Like, this is incredible. You're not going to trust him in this one moment on the ocean, on this lake. And I, and I think through those moments in the scripture... Or maybe my favorite is like, you know, JTB, John the Baptist, and he is, um, he's like in jail, he kind of had his, had his time uh, in the spotlight, and he, he looks, he's like, I don't even know if this is the Messiah anymore, like, what? Like, your whole job was to be assigned in the wilderness to Jesus, you told people, go to Jesus, your followers left you to go to Jesus, people were like, aren't you mad? He's like, no, because he's the Messiah, then he's in jail, and he's like, is this really the Messiah? I'm like, dude, what happened? 
happened? What are you drinking in that jail? Like, what is going on? And I love how Jesus so strangely is like, yes, tell John off. We've done some cool things. I am the Messiah. And then, like, they go and tell him, and then he's, like, telling this audience, like, and by the way, JTP, he's the greatest man born of a woman ever. You know, it's like, it's so interesting the way the kingdom interacts with both our hopes and dreams and our insecurities and flaws. What I love most about the gospel, having followed Jesus intentionally for several decades, is it provides an anchor point outside of myself that can be trusted. Because I don't know, I don't know if I can always trust my own thoughts or my own feelings or my own experiences. But scripture, and really Jesus, provides a point for me to live my life in a way that is meaningful, filled with purpose in the context of community, that adds value to both the little and big decisions of my life. And it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. He says, we need to describe the good news in such a way that even if people don't believe, they want to believe it to be true. That it's that good, that it's that sweet. And I think the origin of the sweetness of the gospel and why Paul writes in other letters about the joy of repentance, which I don't love repentance. Like I probably wouldn't call it the joy of repentance if I was writing the Bible. That's probably why I didn't get asked to write the Bible. Um, It's a joy of repentance because after confession, according to James, comes healing. And that's why 1 Timothy 1.15 and 16 and 17 is the perfect place for us to study and to launch into this semester about questions is because at the very core of all of our questions is the questions of do we believe the gospel? Do we trust not only who Jesus says he is, but who he says we are? Both of those questions are challenging to a relativistic, experience-driven society. And I don't know which is harder. That Jesus tells us who he is, he makes the rules, or that Jesus knows who I truly am, and he directs that. But what I do love is that Jesus didn't just tell us that from a comfy chair in heaven. He told it to us from a very rugged cross after living a perfect life. And that, to me, is why asking questions is important and why answering questions is always more than sharing information. Speaking of questions, see what I did there? I'm a pro, been at it for a while. Somebody has a phone. Somebody's been texting questions, hopefully. I'd love to answer a good number of them and not really answer. Yeah, we call it question and response uh, at at AU because I just never want to tell a student I'm giving you the answer. So it's a way I can kind of like sneak out in case I say something wrong. I'm always like, oh, it's question and response time. Uh, So it's question and response time, Beatrice. I don't feel confident as Jesse or Bonnie to call it answers. Like I'm like, no, no, depending on my pizza before it might be good. I'm not sure. All right. Um, First question. Was that too honest? Sorry, too honest. Edit the podcast before Jesse gets back in town. It's a great question. 
because it gets at the tension that we read in Scripture in Isaiah that the heart is evil and wicked and that the source of things that are wrong. But then it also hints at the creation narrative on the other side that says that we're made in the image of God. And I have to believe that that means our emotional makeup somehow mirrors God's emotional makeup because we're not like him in terms of our physicality or anatomy. And so we hold those two things in tension. It's like, well, is my emotions the image of God or is my heart wicked and like the center of all things bad? And strangely, the answer is probably yes. As someone personally uh, who struggled with anxiety and perfectionism, which is a wonderful cocktail, um, for most of my life, that's why I think the gift of scripture is important in the context of community and why I love this quote from John Bloom. I love quotes, by the way, in case you didn't notice. Uh, anyways, John Bloom says, it's our, our emotions are a gauge and not a guide. And I just wish someone had told me that when I was struggling with anxiety and depression in college. Instead of telling me, like, just read your Bible more, it wasn't very helpful. So our emotions are a gauge uh, and not a guide. And so I think they tell us something. I don't think they tell us what to do. I think they do tell us what to be aware of. And so I, I think I would say the Bible is the guardrails. Community helps you interpret and apply scripture. And, and, and that you probably can trust yourself more than you think. Um, because that's how God made you and wired you. Yeah. Hopefully that is a response that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so the next question kind of follows that. Uh, when mentoring a new believer, how do we go from sharing about Jesus to the greater picture of the Bible? Yeah, I think that the fact that you're, whoever's asking that question is mentoring a new believer and starting with Jesus first is like 80% of the question. Because we have to view scripture from the context or from the lens of the cross. And I think when we read God's redemption plan for humanity backwards, it makes more sense than when we start in Genesis. And so I think that the way to connect the person, the life of Jesus and scripture is to remember that God and Jesus are more similar than we give God credit for. God is as gracious as Jesus, even though Jesus is usually like the homeboy, and God is like, oh, he's the worst. Slavery, patriarchy, ah, the Old Testament. I get it. Old Testament's tough. I, yeah, like I, I trust and love the Old Testament because Jesus did. That's the only, that's the only reason, because uh, it's pretty rough. Um, but I think if we read it with Jesus in our minds, knowing that Jesus was in the Father's mind, that helps us. And then I think we see Scripture played out in our lives because there's creation, redemption, renewal, there's fall right after the creation. I think we kind of live that out in smaller mirrors. Um, but I think we can, never, we can never outgrow the Gospels. Let me say it that way. When small group leaders um, want to like, do something harder to like, I don't, I don't know why, like seem cooler, I'm almost like Gospels. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should do the Gospels plan. We've done it before. I'm like, okay, you've done it before. You're living the Sermon on the Mount. Cool. You can take my job. Yeah, you definitely go do prophecy. I think we can never outpace. Our, our, our pastor, Mark Batterson, says this. He says, because uh, I love quotes, right? He says, um, we're always educated above our level of obedience. So Jesus, Gospels, look backwards. Yeah. Can we do one more? 
Because I knew you were about to close me down, but I'm like, let's keep this party going. I had Chick-fil-A before service. Um, Am I right? Okay. All right, so this is our last question. Is it Beatrice? You want it to be. Okay, cool. Just let it ask. In a world of fake news, you got to double check things. Gospels every month. I mean, when you can defer to Luther, it sounds pretty great. I, I think that the way I remind myself of the simplicity and the goodness of the gospel is looking for God in all things. I mean, I definitely jacked that from Ignatius, but it's true, it's helpful. When other Catholic groups around the country come and visit, I feel like they get so tired of us always talking about like Catholics and Ignatius. <laughs> because it's so helpful that we can gather the graces, that we can look for God in all things, that we can with the examine position our hearts, that the prayer is no longer God show up, but God make me aware of where you're already working. And then missions work becomes a lot less complicated and, and, uh, and reminiscent of colonial times, right? Because we're not saying I'm gonna take Jesus over there, those people that happen to be darker skin, no, uh, I'm going to actually help them see Jesus where he's already at. I'm going to recognize the truth that's already inherent because of common grace. Another Methodist, you know, great. Uh, that, that idea that God is already working frees me up because I'm no longer a lawyer for God. I'm just a witness. Jonathan Martin says that we don't have to defend God, that Jesus defends himself. We just have to be witnesses to what he's done. I know it's the eighth quote. I'm so sorry, Beatrice. No more questions. No more quotes. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to be in a time of worship. So, yeah. Jesus, we thank you that you're here. You're not just here, but you're in our lives every day, in classes, in the dorm, in internships, in jobs. You're, you're there waiting for us to notice. So increase our spiritual awareness so that we can give you the honor and glory that you deserve because you are eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only one worthy of a moment like this. Help us to live in the reality that you abide in the praises of your people. So turn our attention and our affection to you. And help me, help us to remember what you saved us from and then what you've saved us for, which is worship. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We ask this in confidence, co-heirs with Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.